Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out this evening, and thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. This is a rare treat to have J.T. Allison here at the bookstore. Uh, when was the last time you were in Arizona? It's been almost a decade. Has it really been that long? Wow. Anyway, she's here with a remarkable book, a very personal book, and um, it's going to be interesting to listen to the conversation between Nick and JT because it goes in some very interesting places. So for those of you who are not familiar with Nick Petrie, he is the author of the Peter Ash series and um, has started his, in fact, he did his first ever book event here, if I remember, right? Well, every book event, but I... Yeah, you did, but I think it was actually your first ever book event because his publisher suddenly woke to the thought that he'd written a really good book, and they wrote to me and said, you know, so could you fit him in? Um, and so we did, and it was wonderful. Right. So anyway, um, I think JT has written a remarkable book, and it's a book I very much enjoyed, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy hearing about it. So I'm going to turn this microphone over to Nick. Remember, you have to hold it up. Yes, ma'am. I do forget. So if you can't hear me, if they can't hear me, just just remind me. Um, so uh, again, I'm Nick Petrie. This is J.T. Ellison. And we're talking about her new thriller, It's One of Us. Um, so this is a book that's centered around an issue, the idea of uh, infertility and fertility in, in all its forms. Uh, you've been very open about the fact that this is a personal issue. So sort of tell us about kind of why, how you came to the subject matter of this book. And I have to keep it clean, right? <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is the R-rated program. Um, then I'll tell the true story, which is my husband and I were trying to have children and failing and ended up doing all of the fun things that you do when you go through the fertility arts, um, including we had a multi-state booty call because I triggered early and I had to give myself a trigger shot on the plane. I was doing a book event in Omaha with Alex Cava and he had to fly to Omaha to do his part of the process. And he, um, he had a really hard time because sweet home Alabama was playing on this boom box. He's, he's locked in a, that's a sexy song. I right. Think. Right. So he's locked. He's a UT Vol. Go Vols. Go Vols. Um, so he, he was laughing about it and we were laughing about it after. And he, and he said, you know, you really got to find a way to put this in a novel, but I'm a thriller writer and, and infertility is a women's fiction topic. So I sat on it for a really long time because we also had had a conversation about, Hey, I don't think that this is working out. And I think that you should donate if you want. So you've got something of yourself left behind because I don't think I'm going to be able to do that for you. I have no idea if he did. It was something that, you know, it was just, that was his in private. But then I started thinking, wow, what if they start knocking on the door? Because we started seeing that in the news, right? All of a sudden the sibling donor registry pops up. There's all of these kids that are related. And wow, what would that be like? And what would it be like if one of them was a murderer? And then boom, there it was. So 10 years in the making and it finally came to be, and, and when I switched it from being Park's story of the children knocking on the door to being Olivia's story of what it would be like to have all of those children knocking on the door whilst also losing a pregnancy, whilst also finding out that one of them is the suspect in a murder. 
and then just make their day as bad as you possibly can. Well, that's our job. That's our job. I mean, yeah. That that is is our job. job. But so, so, I mean, we all have, you know, personal challenges, right? So I'm really interested in sort of how does that, how does that translate into the book? So you, 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 you started with this big idea, but it wasn't working, right? So then, how, so then, and then, what? Olivia shows up. It starts with character. Yes. Or do you start to build it as a story first? I I was building everything around Park, and I just it's couldn't. Just the husband. This, that's the husband. I just couldn't. Nothing was coming alive for me because I, you know, I can imagine what it's like, but it just wasn't happening. And Olivia came to me fully formed. I saw her walking down a beach wearing rolled up chinos and a chunky cable knit sweater and her dark, dark black hair flipping in the breeze. And she had her arms wrapped around her waist and she was so sad. And I needed to know who she was and why she was so sad. And when I started to question her, she had just had a miscarriage. And I went, oh my God, it's her story. It's not his story. It's hers. And then it became mine. And then the whole thing work came from there. Yeah. I mean, this is the weird kind of miracle of what we do for a living, right? Which is you just have to sort of be open to whatever happens next, especially if you are, uh, we, we, you and I are both, um, you know, organic writers. We, we're, we're pantsers. We make it up as we go along. Um, and I think that's a very different, requires a different kind of brain than somebody who's going to sort of build, build a puzzle piece by piece. So is there, is there a point at which you sort of say, all right, I've been winging it. Now I need to sort of, uh, sort of figure out what the puzzle pieces are, or are you just jumping from twist to turn to twist to turn as you go? Uh, this one was different in that when it became too difficult to write from Olivia's perspective of what was happening, I switched points of view and brought in different characters. So Scarlet appeared. Scarlet is uh, a daughter of the sperm donation from Olivia's husband. Um, her mother appeared. I, I saw for some reason, Darby, she was five feet, four, five, six with the curls. Just, I mean, that made her so real to me. And she's an oncology nurse and Scarlett is this precocious 16 year old who is trying to pull together the whole family of all of these children that she's related to and she's built a discord server and then when it got too rough with them in comes the brother who has been in love with olivia all of this time and they've got a history anytime it felt like it was dragging i pulled in a new point of view including Mm -hmm. the, the police right and once i had seven points of view i was like all right maybe i need to start like Maybe I need to start winding these together and, and crocheting them into a tapestry. So that becomes a slightly more deliberate process. Yes. The, 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 I kept remarking as I was reading sort of how flawlessly you, you manage those. And, and seven points of view in a book is, is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I, was, I, I was really impressed by the, how you made that work and how you manage that. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I would have had the courage to do something like that. So I was, I was impressed. <laughs> Thank you. I, I mean, I think uh, the absolute, we were talking about this earlier, how TV writing, episodic TV, there's such talent out there. And I examined that quite closely. I was watching how the ABCD storylines played out and how, how do you make a character who's not the main character 
vital enough to be a point of view character. Um, and, and that was very influential thinking about it in terms of the cinematography. How would that work? How are we going to move from this house? What's it going to look like at that house? What's it going to look like at that house? And, and moved through all of that very much, you know, very visually. It helped. So were you, because this is such a personal, I mean, just, you know, infertility is, is such a, a, a personal thing. Were you reluctant to put, to turn this into a book? Did you think you'd be putting people off or, or pulling them in? Or was it just, did you just have to do this? All of the above. I was really scared. I mean, I was scared to write it. I, I would approach it <laughs> like it was a bomb about to go off. I would sit down at the computer. I would throw out 7,000 words and then I would run out of my office and I wouldn't come back for a week. And that went on for months. And, and so I wrote it in these huge chunks that it's not my typical process. I'm, I'm a nip at it every day, you know, circle back and, yeah. and keep going forward. Yeah. And this, this was, I was so afraid of it. I switched agents and started talking to her about what I was trying to do. And, and she encouraged me to um, demand more from my material was what she said to me. You need to demand more from your material. So that was a heck of a challenge. That was almost a gauntlet. What, what, is that, what, what did that mean to you? That meant go deep, stay deep. Don't be afraid of the emotions. Connect with the characters. Con let the characters connect to the readers. Um, and it was not easy. It, it just wasn't. It's just a hard story to tell. When I finished it, I let her read it and then said, okay, we're not going to turn this in. I'm going to go write something else. And she was like, oh. Oh, contraire, mon frère. No, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, 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 we are turning this in. And, and I, I really, uh, we had to have several conversations about it because I was really not comfortable putting this book out in the world. That's as, as a writer, it's my job to stay out of the way of the story, not to be the story. Yeah, but. I mean, the, your, the, the afterward I thought was very eloquent uh, uh, where you, where you sort of, and it would be one thing if you sort of, if you threw it out at the very beginning and we, we, you know, you, you get to see this amazing twisty turny. There are, there is, there is so much going on in this book and the velocity of it is, is so incredible. Um, and so you let the book do all of its, its magical things. And then at the end you just said, Oh, by the way, you know, I, I, I know about this intimately because I have lived a version of this. Um, and I think that's a completely legitimate way. And it's not, it doesn't mean the story's about you. And I think people want to know where those stories come from. They do. They do. that, Especially something that's as, as personal and intimate as this. Mm -hmm. That was a variation of the barbaric yop that was supposed to be my first Mother's Day. And I wrote that piece thinking I would place it, thinking maybe somebody would read it and be touched and be helped and know that there's a good life on the other side. And then I put it away for 10 years because I wasn't going to share that. I also included it because I was very worried that somebody might read this and say, oh, what is she doing writing about this? This is something so, so intimate that only a person that's gone through it is allowed to write about it. And that idea that we're only allowed to write about things that we've experienced firsthand, I have issues with. I have big issues with that. I have really but... big issues with that. But I felt like this particular story was going to get pushback um, well, if I didn't admit that it was very much based on my own journey. Right. 
Well, and so you, you've done you've done podcasts and stuff, and re, you know prior to today. So what 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 kind of feedback have you gotten from from those experiences? Um, I've been rather shocked, <laughs> actually. Um, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. I've gotten a lot of heartbreaking stories. I've gotten some emails that have just really rocked me. This is such a universal problem. This yeah. is not something that's unique. It is something that is so very common. And so many people go through this when they're trying to build a family. It's just really common. And having people's stories that that I can shine a light on this and then they can shine a light on their own story right. for me is right. that's why I ended up doing right. it. Yeah, I have this. So my, my, uh, the the first book in my series is about a. I mean, they're they're all about the same uh, main character, but he's got post traumatic stress, and so I, I, you know, and I, I'm not a vet, and I don't have post traumatic stress, so I was. Uh, it, it made me very nervous to write about. I never thought it would be published, and then suddenly it's coming out, and I'm kind of having this holy shit moment, right? Um, As you do. Yeah, but the but the but the feedback from people who who are going through this, and I had I had talked to a bunch of people. I've done a lot of research. I really, I, you know, I did my best to sort of capture that. And I had, I mean, people still come up to me. How do you, how did you know what that feels like? Um, it's an it's a really powerful thing when you can, when you can as a writer capture something that really speaks to other people, and that's the whole goal, right? That's that's why we do what we do. Um, so I had a question about about style. Where's my question about style? There we go. Um, so the, the, the other thing that I really remarked about this book was that it's, it's both really lush and it's really stripped down at the same time. Um, it, it's, it's almost all interior. There's very little physical description of anything. You, you get a little bit here and a little bit there, but there's no, there's no paragraph that says, here's what the house looks like, or here's what the neighborhood looks like. And, you know, we don't know what kind of car she drives or, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. So. Um, but, but you get so much, it's almost stream of consciousness from, from all of these characters. You, it, you are just immersed in their interior lives. Um, so is this, you know, it's like, it's like it exists only inside the heads of, of each of these point of view characters. Um, so is this, is this, is this intentional? Were you trying to capture that was just, that was, is your, is your other work in, like this or is this, this the only way you could tell the story? I think both. My my other work does have quite a bit of interior. I mean, it's that is definitely something that I do, but not at this yeah. level, not at this depth. The, this was just something new. And I think it was the writing in the big chunks where I was so immersed in what was happening. Because you're just going fast. I'm just going yeah. fast. I'm yeah. just laying it down so that it doesn't burn me as I'm doing it. Yeah. Right. And that that really lent itself to going into people's psyches because that's the only place that you can get them to tell the truth, right? We all have our shields and we all have the guarding that we do. And, and you know, you and I are both introverts, but here we are, right. you know, doing our thing out in public and, and it's pulling back all of those layers to get down to who somebody really is and what they're really genuinely thinking and not trying to mislead the reader because it's a mystery and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I wanted you to know what was actually going on. I'm not trying to obscure. I'm not trying to obscure what's happening with this book. Right. Even though it's a thriller, right? I'm not mm -hmm. trying to hide 
who is behind what's going on. No, no, but you are, I, I mean, I love that final twist at the end, which we will not discuss, but I, it, it, um, <laughs> well, I had to have one. Uh, well, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I was totally fooled oh, and, and then it, it landed and I could, and I could go back and I could see all the places where I had, I mean, you, it was, it was, I, I was impressed. I was impressed. It's one of the, one of the things that I love about doing this kind of stuff. Uh, the reason I got on a plane from Milwaukee, aside from the weather, which is significant, a change, um, <laughs> is, is to, because when I'm, when I'm going to have a conversation like this, I read in a different way. Uh, and I get to bring out sort of my, you know, my inner English nerd. Um, and, and you, I always learn something and I always, there's always this, this, uh, because writers are so unique. Writers all have their own sort of take on the world. And it's so, it's such a fun thing for me to sort of dive deeply into somebody else's, uh, you know, sort of version of what I do, um, because it's often so very different. Um, so anyway, it's just a little, um, how, it, how much if I it makes you myself. feel better. I did not know that twist until I was on top of it. That's the best kind. Yes. That's because then you're never telegraphing. It. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm a little, I, I don't want to talk too much about the book because there is so much that happens and I, I don't want to do any spoilers. Um, but so you, I, I, what little I know about you, I'm super fascinated by you. You have this whole other life before writing. You've worked in the White House. You worked at the Department of Commerce. So, so give us, how, how did you get to here? How did I get to here? Or how, I, how did you get to how did you get to your 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 first novel? Um, from a professor who told me I wasn't good enough to get published, so I was trying. And, and you've written twenty five books. I've written twenty nine. Well, there you go. Twenty eight. Yeah. So don't listen yes. to those professors. Don't listen to yes. the professors who say those things. I I probably wasn't at the time. I don't know that I was trying to get to publish. I was just trying to get into an MFA program. Um, but she would not write me the recommendation and, uh, you know, so what are you going to do? I was a double major in politics and creative writing. So I went to the politics route and went to George Washington, met my husband the first night of class. Obviously I was meant to be there. Things happen for a reason. And, you know, did, did all the fun things, worked in the white house, worked in commerce, moved over to marketing in, for an aerospace firm, you know, as you do, as you do, um, <laughs> and then moved to Nashville and none of the things that I knew how to do existed there. Uh, there was no presidential politics. There was no aerospace marketing. And, and why'd you move to Nashville? My husband is from Nashville okay. and he, uh, he's a pollster and he got a job at Gannett. And oh. so we moved back so he could work at the Tennessean. Um, and then I turned into a bad country music song. I, I, my cat died. <laughs> I, that's, it's actually your dog. I can't country, believe you laugh when I say my cat died. <laughs> my cat died, y'all. Um, so, yeah, my cat died. I kept getting lost. I didn't have any friends. I couldn't find a job. Um, we adopted a new cat, and the vet that we went through was looking for somebody. I was like, okay, great. I'm going to be, I'm going to go work for the vet. So at least I can meet some people. And he actually, I thought I was going to be at the front desk and he wanted me in the back. And if you've ever been on the other side of the door, um, yeah, not so great. So I knew the first day I was like, no, no, this is not my life. Not for you. Um, but I was going to give him a week's worth of work. And on Wednesday picked up a golden retriever and herniated a disc in my back and I had to have surgery while I was recovering. I know, right. Bad country music song. I didn't have a truck, but you know, I might as well have. 
<laughs> so we, I am driving down for rehab all the time and I'm looking for things to read because I'm bored because I can't do it. You know, you can't bend over. You can't yep. do anything for six months when you have back surgery. And the librarian, my local librarian said, have you ever read John Sanford? And I said, no. So I was three books into the praise series when I went, this is what I want to do. I want to come back to this. And I went home and I told my husband, I'm going to write a book. He was like, go for it. Not like you're doing anything else. <laughs> he didn't say that, though. He just thought it. He just thought yeah, it. Just but, thought you know, it. It's, it was kind of clearly printed <laughs> yeah. on his forehead. Yeah. Um, and and so I did. And I wrote that first paragraph and I burst into tears when I hit the period because I was home. I was home. I was back to where I was supposed to be. Yeah. And I had had an eight year vacation from it, um, which is probably why I've been trying to make up for lost time. But. I, I did. I wrote that first paragraph and I just knew, and I had a franchise character. Her name was Taylor Jackson. Um, I wrote the book. I didn't realize that it was a novella. I shopped it all over New York, then met up with some people who actually knew what they were doing. And you need more than 40,000 words. Yeah. You yeah. need more than 40,000 words yeah. and you don't send things directly to Neil Nyron. Although um, if you're going to send to anybody, he would be a good. Well, I mean, he's Sanford, Sanford's editor. Yeah. So I've, you know, I'm really, yeah. he inspired me and thank God, he does not remember that submission. We're <laughs> friends now. We have talked about this at length. <laughs> it would have been very embarrassing at the first Thriller Fest, you know. Oh, you're the one. Oh, that's you. Oh, that was you. You're not the only one, though. I'm sure I'm yeah. not. So I I hooked up with some people who knew what they were talking about. I got into Sisters in Crime. Um, they had a group called the Guppies where you can have people read your work um, and help each other out. And a couple of people did. And actually one of those first readers still reads all of the, hi, Joan Houston, uh, still reads all of my work, which is kind of cool. So you got plugged into sort of that community and uh -huh. that was what got you going. That's what got me going. And yeah. so I, I rewrote the novella into an actual novel, got my agent from that. Um, and he sent the book out and it got seven rejections and I got turned right back into that. Oh, you're not good enough to get published. Um, but he said, you know, I believe in you and I believe in this character. Write me another story. Don't kill her at the end of this one. <laughs> She's your franchise character. Let's keep her alive. Um, and I did. And that book sold in a three book deal. And my first came out in 2007. And I really have not looked back. Well, so that's the another interesting thing to me about you is so I'm, I've been looking at your career. So you've written uh, the, the Taylor Jackson is there are eight of those nine now. Nine. Oh, yeah, because you're working on one. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you pivoted to a secondary character. So you've got another four books in Samantha, uh, Owens. Samantha Owens. And then you wrote six books with Catherine Coulter. And now you're doing standalone. So, so talk me through sort of why did you start with a police procedural? What, why did you make those moves and, and what did you like about it and what did you get out of it? So, I mean, the police procedural is just so much fun, right? Especially when you have a main character who's, you know, half cop, half rock star, the warrior goddess of Nashville. I mean, she's just, Taylor's just cool, right? She's the chick that you want to go out afterward and have a beer with, right? Um, but I did. I got bored after writing eight of them in a row. I wanted something different. My editor had moved on. I had a new editor. And he suggested that we spin off um, Samantha Owens into her own series. And the problem was Sam was very grounded in Nashville with a family and I, in order to do that, I had to kill her family. 
That was the that was the stipulation for the New Deal. As as one does. As one does. As one does. Yeah. So I, you know, I leaned in. They're all dead. It was bad. Um, and I moved her to D.C. I mean, it was it was kind of like they. I think they thought that the Taylor folks weren't going to follow me to the Sam books. I mean, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes they don't, but usually they do. Well, sometimes people just don't think that maybe they're following the author instead right. of the character. Right. Um, but they did, and they were very mad at me, um, which was great. And then C- Catherine came calling in the middle of this, the last Sam book um, with a new series idea that she wanted to do. And it was a Brit and the FBI, an international James Bond-esque thrillers. And that sounded like a lot of fun to me, doing international intrigue and having them right. fly all over the world. And, you know, that's totally my bag. I thought that would be fun. And it was. It was really fun. And while I was doing that, I was also writing a standalone called No One Knows that was I was struggling with. And I couldn't. Standalones are hard, especially when you're, you know, building a series. It's really great. You've got a world, you've got characters, you've got readers for it. And suddenly you're going to go off on on your own and try to create something brand new. And I really struggled with finding that story, the story that was big enough to make the leap into standalone. Um, But I finally found it. And that book came out um, and kind of launched the path. And then I started going back and forth with Catherine books and standalones. So that's when you were alternating and doing two books a year at this point. Yes. Doing two books a year at a pretty high level. I mean, Catherine's a number one New York Times bestseller. So there's an expectation of, you know, it's going to be good. (laughs) It needs to be good. (laughs) And it's a, that was a very collaborative environment. She and I worked, you know, it wasn't that I just wrote the book and she put her name on it. That, I mean, that's that, often what happens. That does happen. That does. And it was not that. I mean, I would go out to California. We would plot the whole thing. I would see the value of another mind on a story. Um, I think the screenwriters have all figured that out, that, you know, a collaboration actually can elevate a story someplace that your own mind can't. And that started feeding into the standalones, which started feeding back into Catherine. And, and it just it just all kind of grew. And then I'm, I'm starting to have some pretty big ideas. And that's, you know, that's why I've now switched over to the standalones exclusively, because the ideas are big enough. Well, and you... I mean, I, High I, concept is r- what they call it. Right. I mean, I, I write serious fiction. I love serious fiction. But standalones, you have so much more freedom... To, you can kill anybody you want. You can set it anywhere you want. You can, right. um, you know, I have three main characters I, I, I can't kill. And so I have to, I have to, I have to make it look like I'm trying hard, but, uh, you know, standalones, you have so much more freedom, but you are also kind of operating without a net. Completely without a net, building a world from scratch, building an interior world from scratch, yeah. um, bringing characters to life that people need to fall in love with the way they fall in love with your series characters. It's hard. It's hard. When I'm writing a standalone, I want to be writing a series. And when I'm writing a series, I want to be writing a standalone. They have their, they each have their pros and cons. Right. So, and you, you've, you've written also, she, uh, JT's got a great website and her, you should really go and read her blogs sections, which I, which I really love. Oh, wait a minute. We have an interloper. I'm not sure you even know about Oh, no, I, I, I do know. Yeah, I oh, here, here, you, you introduce these. You introduce these. Oh, all right. So, so you, you you also write as Joss. Oh, all right. Why, why don't you introduce? Them? You don't get you to get out that easy. I know you didn't even know about them. No, I did. More about I, them, right? 
So um, I love this. This is um, JT writing as Josh Walker. And I love the concept. Jane Thorne, CIA librarian. They're fantasy, but they're really fun. I love, because I'm a librarian, I love the idea that I could also be a super spy, you know, which hardly ever comes up, I have to tell you, in the normal course of being a librarian. Um, and they're really fun. And there's a sequel called Tomb of the Queen. And I think you're working on a third one, are you not? The Keeper of Flames will be out at the end of June. Ooh. Yeah. Right. So... I, on the back of this book, I love this. Librarian Jane Thorne enjoys her quiet life of tea and books. That is, until she finds a spell book in the Vanderbilt archives that accidentally gives her access to a magical dimension. Now, we mentioned that JT lives in Nashville and Vanderbilt University, you know, is in Nashville. So as a CIA librarian, she's actually at Vanderbilt University. Did they give you any trouble about that, putting her in the Vanderbilt University no, library? No, no. Maybe they, they us, don't read. No, they mm. do. They let us come and do research in the really? library. Yes. Yes, they did. So is there a magic portal in the Vanderbilt Library? It's in the vault. I love Everything's it. in the vault, right? right? Everything's in the vault. So you'll be happy to know that with the help of a handsome Irish kickboxer, Jane uncovers the truth of her unexpected spell book. The Irish manuscript is one of five grimoire that can raise five dead master magicians and secure their totems of power. And with these totems comes the power to control the world. I love grimoire. Talk to me about grimoires. So, I mean, okay, so obviously I'm writing... Or sure. urban fantasy. I like the idea of a dark book, right? That books have that much power. The, I did a book called The Immortals um, that was set in the world of Wicca. It was a Taylor Jackson novel, but the characters were Wiccans. And A, found out I knew a great number of Wiccans that, you know, sold practicing Dianic witches that just didn't, I didn't know that. My hairdresser was one. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is really fascinating. Is this a Nashville thing? It's a Na I mean, there were a lot of them in Nashville. Mm -hmm. I was shocked. Um, but the other part of it was the power of words. I mean, I had a spell book when I was working on that, that I was writing the spells. And one of the things they said is whatever you do, don't say them out loud unless you're ready to cast. I was like, oh, uh-oh. The power of words, and especially words that you're developing to ha to be a spell. You know, you've actually got to be careful with that. So that got in the back of my head, right? And grimoires are just a blast to to work with anyway, and especially these. These are necromantic grimoires that can raise the dead, and and it is that sounds really dark. These are light. These are light and fluffy and fun, um, humorous. I wanted something. You know, I was a little burned out on the dark stuff. Right. I wanted something that had a little sense of humor and that was a little bit lighter. Um, the books are getting a little darker as we go, just by the nature of she's coming into her powers and she's an incredibly powerful magician. That's a theme in all of my work really is a woman coming into her power. That's for sure something that I write about over and over and over again, just in different ways. But they're, they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. What is a grimoire? It's a, it's a, uh, how would you define it? I mean, it's the witch's book. It's a book of spells. It's a, yeah. It's a spell book. It's where, it's where you, it depends on who's writing it, but where they put their spells. Yeah. 
Well, so you, you've there's talked... major and minor arcanas and well, so so you're you're Fun stuff. you're big on research, right? Some some writers just it comes all out of their head. Um, so so you know again back to your back to your blog. You wrote this wonderful thing about a, a, attending a a four at a time autopsy, which I love. That's a, mm-hmm. that's that's a, so like how much of that is is just you being curious about the world? I mean, how, how do you how do you develop these kinds of relationships with people who will let you do this stuff? <laughs> True story at a Karen Slaughter signing. I went because Karen is, I think, one of the greatest writers that we have, period. I'm a huge fan. And I went to her signing in Nashville at the old Davis Kid. I was so excited. I was just shaking. And one of my one of my critique group people came with me and we were it was my my turn. And I, you know, was like, Karen, I'm one of your biggest fans and blah, blah, blah. And she said, you know, we talked and she goes, who do you want me to make this out to? And I said, JT Ellison and Somebody in line goes, wait, you're JT Ellison? (laughs) (laughs) And my friend, she was like, oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, 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 not now, not now, not now. This is Karen's, this is me and Karen's moment. Um, So it turns out she was a death investigator with Metro Nashville. And she was there with the medical examiner because they too were were fans of Karen's. And they pulled me aside and said, yeah, you need to come and do an autopsy because not quite there. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to do that. I have limits. Uh, you know, I, I did a lot of ride-alongs with the police. I've interviewed the FBI. I've gone to the New York field office. I've done all kinds of crazy things in the name of research. And autopsy was not one that I wanted to do. I was making do with what I got online and, you know, it was yeah. okay. And they were like, no, you got to come in. I had to, I had to pose as a nurse because you know they don't just let people walk in and watch autopsies so I had to pose as a nurse and they snuck me in and I told them I'm like I'm either going to pass out or throw up or both and they said no you won't I said oh yes I will and and they realized I was serious and said okay well seriously if you if you feel faint just you know step back step out so I started and I was like they're there can only be a couple of things that would just be awful. One is a man, my father's age or kid. I don't think I can handle that. I I go in not knowing that there are four dead people that we are going to do autopsies on. One is a man, my father's age, one is a kid. And then there was a a woman, my age and, um, and a 20 year old who had committed suicide. And I'm like, uh, uh, started literally over there. You know, the bodies are here and I'm over there. And by the end, I had my head in his chest cavity. It was the most fascinating experience I have ever had. If you ever doubt that there is something else out there, um, go and do an autopsy because it was the most spiritual experience I have ever had. Interesting. We are all exactly the same inside. We are the same. There is something else that makes us who we are. And wow, did that blow me away. Plus I had all the, I had everything wrong, right? I had a notebook and she says, you're going to want to put that down. I'm like, why? Because you're going to get blood on it. I'm like, it's an autopsy. <laughs> There's no blood. <laughs> she looks and she goes, where do you think it all is? <laughs> I mean, you know, I've seen a million of them on TV. There's no blood. Yeah. Wrong. Um, so it was, it was mind blowing and eye opening. And it, it gave just like the police overnights where the man died in front of me and I had his blood on my boot. 
um, a level of gravitas to the work that wasn't there before. Right. It just, it just enhances it to the point where you can't not do it. And I think every writer who does that kind of research is going to be affected differently and it's going to affect their work in new ways. But it lets you access the emotion of the people who are doing it because you have been at that, in that place, right? Right. Right. It's, and it's just, the people that do it are just such angels on earth. I mean, it sounds like it's so gruesome and weird and, and, and it's just not, that's just not what it is. It was, it was beautiful in a lot of ways that I would have never imagined and certainly made it its way into the books in a level of respect that I hadn't had before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, any questions out there while we're yammering away? Up now here? that we've freaked everybody yeah. else. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about something else before we ask for questions. Right? Oh, no, wait a minute. Oh, there no, we go. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I was feeling uneasy with this conversation, but so I'm glad we've moved on. Why did you choose to write under a different name for this? Is it because of the genre? Yeah, because, re repeat the question. Um, uh, the question is, why did I choose to use a pen name for the fantasy series? And it is because of the genre shift. Um, I was advised from... Uh, I had a lot of people that didn't want me to do it because obviously it's a distraction away from my main job, which is writing thrillers, but it was such a fun idea and it was something I really wanted to do. And so I promised if I did it, I would do it under a pen name so it wouldn't be confusing or compete timeline wise with when the books were being published and that kind of stuff. Plus, you know, it's, it's a cooler name. Joss Walker. I mean, it's a cool name, right? When you get to make up your name, it's always cooler than the one you were born with. Right. That's absolutely. Just, just, yeah. <laughs> so, anybody else? Come on. You guys are usually good for something. <laughs> I saw three hands before. What happened? <laughs> All right. We... Actually, how did you come up with that name or did someone else? So excellent that you asked. Joss Walker is a, it started as a collaborative name between myself and my first co-writer, Alicia Klapik. Her maiden name was Walker. I chose the Joss. She chose the Walker. Um, and then she decided she didn't want to be doing urban fantasy. She only wanted to do epic, which is what she normally writes. And so I brought in another co-writer who has been on, on the series since. And um, her name is R.L. Perez. And so I just took the Joss Walker for myself. Instead of it being, you know, J.T. Ellison and Alicia Klapik are Joss Walker, which on some of the original books, that's that's what this says. Um, but this is, yay, a reprint. So <laughs> this is a late. <laughs> it's been updated. Sure. So the other part of it is I am publishing them through my indie press, Two Tales Press. Um, we... Our, this particular niche of genre does really, really well at a lower price point. And the New York publishers were not, this was not their thing, right? It's, it's too different. I'm, my reputation can only go so far. They're, they're not very good at um, 
things that are sort of outside their, they, 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 they have little niches where they like to put things. Right. And, if, and if you are, are, you know, you fit in too many or you don't fit in one that they, that they're really interested in, it's hard to get interest. And they, my publisher just doesn't do this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just not, it was just not what they did. Um, so I decided to, to do it myself and it has been, it's so much fun because it's me to you through Barbara and that's it. Right. I mean, there's there's no other. I I'm creating the art with the artist. I'm creating the interiors myself. I'm creating the the keywords and the categories and working with Ingram to have the book shipped directly to the bookstores. And, you know, it is it's a really interesting other side of the behind the green curtain of how publishing works. And it's been it's been really fun figuring out, you know, the, our, our machine is a machine. It is a huge, huge, huge machine. Yeah. This is a little more nimble and a little bit quicker and I can make my own decisions and nobody gets to tell me no. And I like that. Yes. Yes. So it's gone through, I mean, Two Tales is a, is a traditional independent press in that, you know, we have, we hire outside artists, outside copy editors, outside editors, um, go through the beta reading process, you know, with, with a lot of different people, you know, it's as high quality as you're going to get from any other press is, is the idea. I mean, why do it if it's not going to be, right? you know, indistinguishable yes. from yes. something that comes out of New York. So, and let's just recap. So, Two books a year, started a publishing company. Oh, and by the way, also is the host of a PBS or a, a television show uh, called The Word on Words. Mm -hmm. um, so talk about that a little bit. So just, you know, a lot of free time she's got, right? Yeah, a lot of free time. So A Word on Words <clears throat> is um, uh, uh, John Siegenthaler. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He um, started the First Amendment Center. He was a speechwriter for Robert Kennedy. He was at the Freedom Rides. I mean, he's just an astounding journalist. Um, every Sunday morning for 40 plus years, he did a show on Nashville's PBS station, NPT, called A Word on Words. And he interviewed authors and everybody was on that show. You go look at those archives. I mean, everybody who was anybody was interviewed by John Siegenthaler. John was actually my very first interview ever, which was incredible. And he and I just kind of clicked. And, uh, you know, he was a cub crime reporter at one point, and he absolutely loved Taylor Jackson. He just was in love with her. Then I was on the show, gosh, six times, I think. Um, and the last time I was on, he told me he had been diagnosed with cancer and he passed away soon after that, which was just awful. And to lose that kind of literary giant in Nashville was, was terrible for all of us. And the station didn't want to lose the show. So they decided to reimagine it and they asked me to co-host to which I said no immediately because I'm an introvert. I'm a writer. I am not an interviewer. That is not what I do. And the idea of doing it on camera just terrified me. Although I should point out. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> it did, though. I mean, it just yeah. truly, truly did. Yeah. Um, and they came back to me and said, you know, just come do a just come do it. Give test. it a try. Give it a yeah. screen test. Just see. And I nailed the screen test. I mean, I, I was literally calling my agent. And he was like, <clears throat> you have to do this. It's a TV show. I'm like, no, I don't want a TV show. Um, 
but I agreed to do it. And it's ended up being probably the best thing that I've ever done. Being able to, A, continue John Siegenthaler's literary legacy in Nashville is the biggest honor of my life. Add in, I get to meet and talk to some of the most luminous authors on the planet. Is it still weekly? It is. Um, so we have 15 episodes a season. Okay. We're in our eighth season. I have a co-host. I'm not doing it all myself because that was my stipulation. Uh, you know, I am primarily a writer and I want to be a writer um, more than anything. So I have a co-host. I'm on my third co-host right now. Jeremy Finley is his name. He's fabulous. And... We do 15 episodes. So we just wrapped season eight. We have eight seasons now. So now the camera doesn't scare me at all. Now it's like, you know, oh, I'm the one reassuring people as we sit down right. who are nervous and right. sweaty. And it's like, it's fine. Just forget it. We're there. just having a conversation. Just, just look yeah. at me. Don't even look at the camera. Right. You know, it's, it's really funny. I said to somebody the other day, I'm like, when did I become the voice of reason. <laughs> when did that happen? When did I become the elder statesman? That's just, I mean, I still feel like that dweeb who sent 40,000 words to Neil Nyron. You know, I, I don't feel like I've moved past that. <laughs> I really don't. Well, I had a conversation with my dad last year who I think he was 82 at the time. And he told me that he still feels like he's about 25. So it's I think, all, I think it's that's, all in I think, how you approach yeah, it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Other thoughts? Other questions? Oh. So, Catherine Coulter, had you known her before, or how did you fall out of the blue? <laughs> so, Re repeat the question. Um, how did I get hooked up with Catherine Coulter? So, my agent and her agent, my agent worked for her agent, and he, she was looking on the down low, very quietly, looking for a co-writer for a series that she wanted to do that she had, you know, come up with, but didn't have the time to do. And, it, you know, he said, do you want me to put your name in the hat? And I'm like, well, sure. But I mean, I don't think I want to be a co-writer. That's not And at the time they were snapping us up. Um, uh, they were really grabbing a lot of the young writers who were breaking through, you know, starting to build a readership. And it's like, okay. Um, so I was not the only one that was being considered. And then I didn't hear anything forever. And we did a new deal with my publisher and closed that deal for three more books on Friday. And on Monday, my agent called me and he says, you're about to get a job offer. And then the phone rang. And all I remember was Catherine laughing because she's got the greatest laugh of any person you will ever hear. Um, and I had agreed to do two books with her. And I was like, I, I don't even know how this happened. And then I was in a plane out to California, suddenly had five books under contract and was like, okay, got to get serious about the yeah. budgeting of time and, work. you know, get to work. And wow, the collaborative process, which is why I'm collaborating on the fantasy books. The collaborative process was really amazing. And I have seen that with these, my co-writer, flies up to the house. We do the exact same thing. She flies up to the house. We sit down for a couple of days. We hammer out the stories and we get places that we would have never gotten on our own. Even if we were just doing a zoom together, something about being in person with somebody being in the same room. Yeah. Just, I mean, it's sparks fly. And that to me is fun. I mean, the creative process is, that's my gift, right? It's, uh, we were talking about this earlier. I've been gifted with a brilliant marriage and, and a gift 
for words and telling stories. And I want to tell as many of them in as many different veins. I mean, I've got a romance that I want to write. I've got a lot of other ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of running out of time. So I need to, I need to get back to work, right? Well, it's part of the, I mean, that's part of why we do it, right? Is to get to fall into something, right? I mean, writers start as, as readers, right? This is how, why, how, how we catch this particular disease, right? We catch it from books. <laughs> that's the best description yeah. I have ever heard. It is a disease. It absolutely is. And once you're infected, you can't turn away. Yeah. Have I considered a book, The Witches of Nashville? Um, no, but true story, I did speak at the Pagan Unity Festival and met an oracle who gave me some advice, and there are a bunch of witches in Nashville. Yeah, so that's, you know. And then just from our online uh, audience here, Tracy would like to know. Hi, Tracy. I know who that is. <laughs> God, you go first. That's a, so the question is, um, what helped JT and I elevate our craft to best-selling status? I am not sure that I know the answer to that question. I, I, I learned to I learned to write by reading, and I think part of it is that if you if you read good books, you learn to write better. Um, you know, I I always tell people to read above your level. You know, if you if you want to be if you want to be Tom Clancy, you should be reading John le Carre, right? If you want to be John le Carre, you should be reading, uh, you know, you know Dickens, right? You should be reading Thackeray. You should be, you know, if you if you want to write romance, you should be reading, uh, you know, God, those great English novelists. I mean, all, all of that stuff, right? Um, so that's the thing that gives you that sensibility. That's how you learn what works. Um, and the other is you just you you always have to try to get better, right? The goal is to get, is to always try to get better at whatever it is that you're doing. And I think not everybody has that kind of mindset. Um, and, and that, to me, that's, and, and just perseverance. I wrote three books I couldn't get published um, before my first one got, got uh, picked up. Um, and that one, you know, was nominated for six awards and won three. So part of it is just keep going. And, and just because you've written one and you're not, you know, suddenly, you know, Catherine Coulter or John Grisham or whoever it is that you'd like to be, um, you know, it takes a long time to get good at this. So that I don't disagree. I also think you should surround yourself with the people that you want to emulate, make friends with the people that you respect the most. And if they will let you pick their brains, pick their brains. Um, I got very lucky to work with Catherine. I mean, I certainly learned a lot about writing with her. Um, what I liked and what I didn't like right? also, which is very important. You can't just say yes to everything. Um, and I think caring enough to make the story better by doing a little extra research, right? getting an expert who, um, if this is who I think it might be, is uh, one of my experts. And, uh, you know, I don't write a book without her looking at it and making sure that I've done it right. Because I think if you do it right, then you can make the character come to life. And then, you know, the better the character, the better the story right. and builds from there. Yeah, I like that. Any more online questions, Patrick? Yeah, there's a question about, um, you know, uh, JT mentioned Karen Slaughter. Are there other, this is for both of you, are there other writers that uh, inspire you? 
Oh my God, so many. How do we even, we were playing this game in the car. Yeah, we were, we were. <laughs> Who do you read? Who's your auto buy? Um, so Daniel Silva is an auto buy for me. Dan, oh, yeah. Diana Gabaldon is, yay, home store, um, is an auto buy for me. I've read that series nine <laughs> times. I swear to God. Um, I, oh my God, how can we even, there's so many, there are so many. Jane is a perfect example and a, and somebody else who has lent herself to my career, but also to everybody else's by trying new things under new names. I know she, she makes jokes about her many pen names, but I find it refreshing and exciting that she tries new things with new storylines. And those are the kinds of people I want to emulate. Yeah, for sure. She's a for great sure. example of that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a big rereader, so I have a sort of canons of things that have really meant a lot to me. Um, I was here last night with uh, C.J. Box, and, and I was trying to, I was telling him about um, the Matthew Scudder books by Lawrence Block, and they're um, from the mid-80s to the early aughts, probably. There's, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 of these. And they are just, they start out sort of plain. The first few books are are, are certainly interesting and captivated, but not... Um, super elevated, but by the end they, they are operatic and these these long complex storylines. And the character Matthew Scudder is a is a recovering alcoholic and captures this world and mindset. Um, this is sort of New York private detective, sort of unofficial private detective noir, but they aren't conventional detective stories at all. So like I've read that series three or four times. Um, I'm. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I I started reading Robert Crace when his first book came out, so I've been reading him all along. You know, Robert Parker for me kind of there's this this era of early stuff that I've read many many times. There's somebody on the wall. Up. There's somebody on the wall up there who's Greg Rucka. Critical Space. Have you read Critical? Have you read that no, series? No. You need to read that series. Okay. Critical Space is one of the best thrillers I think I've ever read in my entire life. Because it takes the hero and flips him into what you would think would be the villain. And he does it so perfectly and so seamlessly and has him betray everything that he stands for. And I love it. And I use it. I go back and read it every once in a while when I'm trying to mine a character and bring out something that I know they're hiding. And wow, that that is... Yeah. Huh? I think he's doing graphic novels and TV and, and he just had a movie come out and yeah, there's the, a fair amount of television. Yeah. He's, he's not doing a lot of novels anymore, but wow. Critical space, really seminal, seminal book for me. All right. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm reading, uh, the, we could be heroes. Yeah. Um, short stories on Amazon. How did you get involved in that? And were you given carte blanche for, were you just given, a hero and build your story around it. Is that how it worked or? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to my agent for landing that deal. Um, that, oh my gosh, to be asked to write and as part of this collection. So the collection features Lisa Scottolini, Lisa Unger, Janelle Brown, Victor Mythos, and me. 
<laughs> um, I, uh, I was really excited to have a chance to do it. I love writing short stories. It's one of my favorite things. And uh, I had had an idea for, for a book um, that I ended up using for this because this, this was a pretty complex short story. Um, they gave us a couple of prompts you know, we could be heroes, what it meant to be a hero. And it's an interpretation of what it means to be a hero, right? And what my idea of being a hero is, and is, do you have to wear a cape? Or is it something more moral? And you show your, your heroism through your moral compass. Um, I had a lot of fun writing it. And it did, it just came out. I'm, I'm excited that you saw it. Oh, they're really, I mean, it's, it's an amazing collection. They're all very different. I mean, I, I, I firmly believe, and I've, I've actually done this in anthologies before where I'll give 10 writers a prompt knowing that they're going to give me 10 different stories. I, I did one called Dead Ends that I, I gave them a photograph of a house and said, write a story about what's happening in this house. And they're all wildly different. I mean, you can give us, I want to do an anthology one day where we're actually given the full outline given the full outline of the story. And I guarantee you the stories are going to look so incredibly different because it's just how our brains interpret the idea. Mine, that particular one, there was a, a horrible story out of France and Paris of a man who fell on the street and nobody attended him for hours and he died of hypothermia. I remember that. Remember that? Yeah. And I bookmarked it because I'm like, wow, there's a novel there or so, at least something. something. And I ended up being able to use it for this short story because somebody does stop. Somebody does stop and help him. And so he doesn't die of hypothermia. And But that's not what the real story is. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very interesting quest from there. Uh, so any more questions here? How, how are we on time, Patrick? All right. Anybody else? So back on this idea of getting better at what we do, I have kind of one last thing I want to talk about, which is you, you've written yourself kind of an annual review every year. Sort of this is, this is, I, I've never had a real job, so I don't really, I don't really, I've never experienced this. Um, but um, you really look at your performance for the year and you sort of take it apart. And so, so Tell us kind of about what, what that looks like, what that process is like for you. And again, this is in her, in her blog, which I highly recommend. So um, my performance reviews, I used to get performance reviews. They were never very good. <laughs> um, they loved me, but I, God, I chafed against the authority of being told what to do, when to show up. You know, I was perpetually late for work. It, five minutes. I mean, no more than five minutes late, but perpetually late because the idea of having to be there at a certain time was just ridiculous to me. I mean, it is ridiculous. You know, it just, I was meant to be a writer. Always have been. But it was 2009 and I was on a group blog called Murderati and uh, social media was just starting to pop up and I was seeing that social media was going, you know, Facebook in particular was going to start taking some time. And I came across a blog um, by a guy named Chris Gilbo, The Art of Nonconformity. He was in the midst of trying to reach, traveling to every single country in the world was what he was doing. And so his annual review was all in the service of how do I get there? What do I do? All of those things. And I was like, okay, this is a really cool idea. I think it was back in the Merlin Mann 
days. Are you familiar with any of the old productivity gurus? No, no. Yeah, Zen Habits, Leo Babuda, and um, Merlin Mann and Chris Gilbo gave birth to Cal Newport. Okay. Actually, it turns yeah. out he, uh, Leo mentored Cal, ah. which was fascinating to me. We talked about that the other day. I was like, oh my gosh. Um, I'm a big fan of Cal Newport, deep work. Just check it out. So I, I modeled my annual reviews over how many words have I written? How many books have I read? You know, just the normal things that you would do. And, and it has turned into an annual tradition where I, I really deep dive into, you know, what went right, what went wrong. Um, what can I improve? What are my goals for the following year? Um, you know, year goals, five-year goals, all of that kind of stuff. And it's, it's a lot of fun to do though. I, I was telling Nick and Barbara at dinner that this year I totaled up my words and it was only 140,000. And I was really upset with myself because my goal was 200, 200,000, which would be two novels-ish, right? Um, and I was really upset with myself because I felt like I'd been slacking off. Um, we were getting ready. I'd done multiple edits on this book and, and had a bunch of Jane stuff. And so I, I was almost wrapped and I was almost ready to post it. And I was in the kitchen kind of complaining to my husband and I went, wait a minute. I wrote half of another novel. I forgot <laughs> to write forgot that down. Yeah. I forgot almost 35,000 words and suddenly I had 185,000 and I was very happy. And uh, that's both good and bad that I measure my worth as a writer by how much I produce. And that's something that I'm really examining right now, really thinking about the quality and the quantity and how important it really is to hit that 200,000 word goal. I mean, is that moving the goalpost or not? Right. But it's, it's a very, as you can tell already me talking about it, it's just an introspective process to just kind of take my own temperature. Am I happy with what I'm doing? And if not, what do I need to change to be happy again? Well, and just for perspective, so this, this is uh, 80,000 words, 90,000 words, this book? Oh, it's 107 or 8. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so 200,000 words is a lot of words. That's really it's what two we're novels. Yeah. It's about two yeah. novels. Yeah. It's one novel and four chunky short stories, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts or, or before we're going to wrap it up here? No. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Nick, what's your job about your forthcoming novel? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a little embarrassing. Um, uh, so I, this was the book that was supposed to be out um, a month and a half ago. And I ended up, um, it, you know, some books are easier than others. And this is one of the others. Um, but this is a book about. Um, so my, the, there are three main characters in the Peter Ash series. There's Peter, there's June Cassidy, who is his sweetheart. Uh, and then there's, uh, Lewis, who is, uh, sort of their semi-retired career criminal friend. Um, and I, I have been threatening to write kind of a Lewis book for, you know, almost since the beginning because people really love Lewis. Lewis is, Lewis is a, an interesting soul. Um, and so this is sort of a dive into Lewis's past. It's not set in Lewis's past, but it's, it's Lewis's past has sort of come back to bite him and, and, um, you know, kind of what does that look like? And we learn a lot more, we get a lot more of Lewis's point of view. We get a lot more of kind of what Lewis used to do. And we really kind of see him and, and he, and Peter of course gets roped in on this. We sort of see him doing 
what he used to do uh, in the in the present day. Um, and it's a it's a uh, it's a big swing, and it's kind of a it's kind of a big book. So it's, I'm I'm really interested to see uh, what the reception is. Um, and it's currently slated for September, but I'm pretty sure it's going to end up getting bumped to January of 2024 because that's where my my pub spot has been for the last the previous seven books. Uh, we are arguing about the title. We have been arguing about the title for at least a year. Um, yes. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what I think that my working title, uh, and, and so, and this is something that a lot of people don't really know about, um, about sort of commercial fiction that we don't often get final say over title. Title is really a marketing decision. Um, and what is it, what, it, what does it telegraph to a reader in a couple of words uh, about the kind of book it is? Um, and so I have my own uh, kind of ideas and, and of my seven books, three of them are my titles. Uh, yeah, kind of four are my titles. Um, but they're, they're great. They don't, you know, if I don't like a title, they're not going to shove it down my throat, but, but it's, uh, I, I, for some reason I, I am up in arms about this, uh, more than usual. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it's going to go. Mine, this is on its fourth title. It's a great title. It's a great title. And a great and cover as well. The cover is brilliant. The title is really great. It is not the original title. We Will you we, tell us what it started as? It started as The Many Faces of Me. Okay. But again, that was Park's story. Yeah. That was the husband's story. Yeah. Um, so I was looking for something that was her story. And we we got really far down the road with Never Darling. Which that's, a, that's a good title. I loved. And then it literally, I mean, it was up on, in the systems oh, and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then it got pulled at the last second. And we, um, the four of us, my, my publisher, my editor, my agent, and I got on a zoom and we were literally just going, I was going to the end of every chapter because I like to write stingers at the end of mm -hmm. the chapters, right? To draw you into oh, the next that's a good idea. line. Yeah. And, and I said, it's one of us. And they went, wait, 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 say it again. <laughs> like, it's one of us. And they're like, oh, and I was like, oh, that's it. There you go. That's it. There, there it is. Go. So it was actually from the book. So technically I titled it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that is frustrating though. I, I wish you good graces for it'll, that. It'll, it'll go how it goes. I will tell you a story about your man, Neil Nyron, because oh, yeah. I've spent a lot of time in New York with Neil Nyron. And every morning you get up and watch your dogs. Every morning, Neil would get up because he, he edited a vast roster of thrillers and he would take a walk around New York from, I don't think it was Central Park, but on streets and all. And he would just do titles. That's what he did. He would, and his morning walk, and he liked two word titles. So he would do his morning walk and try to put words together. And I've never been entirely sure if they applied to any specific book or whether he would just found a good two-word title, and then he waited until it would fit a book. But the truth is the sales department determines the title, and um, authors also don't get to choose the cover art. Those are decisions made by the marketing and sales department. Um, they sometimes let you look, and you can influence them. You can, you can influence, but, you can, if you hate something. Right, so what it really them. comes down to is the author has a copyright in the words. The publisher has a copyright 
in the artwork, which they usually license from somebody today rather than heavy, but they also have a copyright in the production. So the the type they choose and the way it looks on the page, and if they're illustrations and all, the publisher owns all of that, the author does not. So it's a collaborative thing when the book finally comes out, you know, and I think authors are often put on the grill and say, why'd you let that terrible cover come out or, you know, whatever. And the answer is they didn't have any choice. Um, it's one of the things that, you know, that just happens, right? So JT is right when she's doing her own publishing. And actually we had a long conversation about terms because you can also choose the terms that you set with the uh, publisher that you chose, and I told her that the terms she'd originally chosen sucked for a bookstore, and it was going to be really hard for her to get bookstores to buy them. So we went through a process of adjusting the, um, and I've actually had that conversation now with quite a few other authors, you know, because it's useful information. It's very useful. It's, I mean, understanding how a bookstore works which is something Jane Ann Krentz and I have interviewed everybody from Poison Pen, from Barbara, all the way down. And one of the things that we've learned is how incredibly complicated this is. This is not just you put books on a shelf. No, and it's taken years. Jacob, who's a new hire at the bookstore, asked me one day, you know, if, if we were, what, what do you say something like, you know, did you learn on the job or did you go to book selling school or something, you know? And, you know, I mean, we started really small. I was the only bookseller here for over a year and it was a little tiny store over at the horse's ass on Main Street, although the horse wasn't there when we started. So, well, it wasn't. But then they put up the equestrian statue which made it a lot easier to tell people where we were, you know? Um, and, and you just kind of gradually learn things, right, Patrick? I mean, look at what you've learned over 27 years now. But I don't know that you could ever go to school. You know, there's a club book selling school, but I can't, I mean, there's no way that that would actually embrace the complexities of a bookstore. You... It does always change, right in front of us, actually, all the time. You guys would be the perfect people to run an academy. You know, but that's sellers. not true because the thing is that a bookstore reflects the community that it's in. This bookstore is the way it is because Scottsdale was a tourist destination. It was not a residential city, and all the people who initially came to shop in the store didn't live here. So on day three, I said, sign here. I said, and I will write to you, which was never in my business plan. But I quickly realized that, you know. Out of town was going to yep, be big. And, you know, but Scottsdale is now changing. And now there are a lot more people living in downtown Scottsdale. There are actually condominiums and the whole bit. And so the traffic in the store has changed. And our, one of our best-selling categories now is self-help books, which I couldn't, I mean, I would have guessed that. And, you know, 20 years ago, I'd have just snickered. So it's constantly changing. And the secret is you have to keep adapting to it. That's really it. So it would be useful for us to talk to somebody who owned a bookstore in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, or Boca Raton, Florida, because it would be a completely different community. No, that makes know. perfect sense. Yeah. So you just, you just, it's organic, and you really do have to. That's why Barnes and Noble had so much trouble when they were centralized. And the new guy, the thing he brought to Barnes and Noble, which has improved it, is he gave each store autonomy. So they could make their own buying decisions and other things. And so all the Barnes and Nobles are not alike now across the country. It makes a huge difference. 
So that's the lesson, you know, to learn from that. I want to thank everybody for coming this evening. It's really been a treat to have JT here and to have Nick, super host Nick. So please give them both a round of applause. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.